Hello and welcome to The Grid, a podcast for, with and about the global community of entrepreneurs with an eye on social impact and innovation. The bright minds that are inspiring and driving change across business, civil society, academia and government. The Grid brings bright minds together, connecting the dots on the map. I'm Alexei Korolev and if this introduction sounds too grand, that's because it is. You see, we, and by we I mean myself and my co-producer Milo Tesla, are both part of this entrepreneurial community. And one thing we realised from quite early on is that we don't really know the others. So what's going on and who's doing what? Who are these fabulous people and what makes them tick? These are some of the things that we're going to explore here on The Grid, hopefully with your help. The Grid is a podcast with a world focus, but for this very first edition we thought, well, let's take a topic that's slightly less global, something we can all easily relate to. Neighbourhood. Neighbourhood, of course, can mean different things. For most of us, it means a place of residence or a place of work, a place of peace or a place of war. A place. A physical place somewhere. But it can also mean something rather more spiritual, if no less geographical. A collective history and sense of belonging. Common values and shared ideals. Incidentally, when was the last time you had a frank and open conversation with your neighbour? Or helped them with something? I happen to live next door to the Austrian president and need I tell you that I've never so much as exchanged a word with him. Well, here in Vienna, one business driven by such neighbourly concerns is Frag Nebenan, or Ask Next Door. Frag Nebenan allows people to share their things and time with their neighbours. I asked co-founder Andreas Ferster to tell me more. Frag Nebenan is a network, a social network for neighbours who have maybe are new in the neighborhood or maybe are just not used to talking to people or just knocking on the door. So we try to build with Fragniman a way to make it easier for people to engage with one another. How does that work exactly? You hear from Fragniman. It's a web service. So you register. Um, Much like you do on Facebook or Twitter. Right? Yeah, with a few extras. The most important extra is that your account, you are based on an address where you live. And this address has to get verified by us. Because we only want to connect people who actually do live in the area, they say, because we want to connect them by their locality and not by a friend relationship. So the big difference is that on a traditional social network, I connect with people I might already know or might already have seen somewhere or talked to. And at Fragniman, we connect people who live in the same geographical area. So we verify your address. And once we've done that, you can see who is living near you, who's living in maybe in the same building as you are. We think that there's a big, big percentage of people who want to engage with their neighbors, with other people, and maybe not sure how to do it, or they don't feel that secure to do it. We see big potential in 
those neighborhoodly networks where people can help each other and do those small and nice little things that make life easier. So once you've connected the people, what can they do with that connection? What can they share? What do they do? First thing that we do is we, we give them room, we give them space where they can like introduce themselves, talk. Maybe some people will ask for help, maybe some people will put up stuff that they don't use anymore and want to give away. But right now it's very much based on communication, on postings they write and this will, yeah, will probably change as we grow, as we add more specific functions. But at the moment it's very much based on communication because we really think that people can do a lot with that already. Of course platforms like Fagnebenan are not really news anymore. By Andreas's own admission, there are zillions of them around the world with some already quite well established. But what they're doing may completely change the way we think about things like social trust and personal responsibility. I, I use the word empowerment. So what I think should happen is as we build up those networks, people are in a way more flexible. They don't need to rely on bigger institutions. And it's also a way to people to group and also it's something where they can somehow live democracy in a way. If they, because when you put a lot of people together that care about the same space, about the same area where they live, they all have opinions and there's always something going on and that matters to them. And Fragnemann could be a really good place where they can voice that opinion, talk about this. Giving someone a space to voice their opinion is always a little subversive. Indeed, thinking small has huge implications for the powers that be and the traditional profit-driven economy. And in some places, it's also changing established social hierarchies. I make a t-shirt. It's real good fabric. It's cotton. I use scissors. I use a lot of stuff to make the shirt done. Andres Tayedo Pacheco is a young fashion designer with a Dutch fashion label called Rambler. His is a remarkably powerful story of social transformation. Just a few years ago, he was living in a shelter in Amsterdam, with little hope of becoming anything, let alone a fashion designer. But then one day, his shelter was visited by a group of social workers. Among them was an enterprising young woman, Carmen van der Fecht, scouting for talent. And Carmen came once and told us about her project that she really wants to do. And if you don't, she was like, if you don't have nothing to do in school, come meet me, do some, some creativity with the people, bring more people. And I always was into drawing, so I thought it was a great idea. This project grew to become Rambler. Yes, we are a fashion label, streetwear, designed by street teens. That's Carmen van der Fecht herself. She started working life as a designer and had played a leading part in a big Dutch design company, before she co-founded Rambler in 2009. So we, we're aiming at street teens. And street teens, we, well, we see, for instance, real teens who are living on the streets, unfortunately. We meet them at refuges. So we work very close uh, with social organizations who guide these teens, but also a youth who are having other difficulties with maybe school going or... So we kind of open, but it's in the age range of... 18 till 28 for those who, who can still change their lives. We have their unique talents to create a fashion item which is named after the teenager and 
we have studios. Well, actually, we have one studio still. <laughs> We're aiming at uh, studios in six main capitals. Teenagers in those cities, teenagers have their own unique styles. In that way, we, we said we uh, have studios in where teenagers daily can come to have a creative program. And in the meantime, there is a social program. And we ending that with, with fashion shows. Technically, Rambler consists of two organizations working under the same banner. One provides guidance, creativity coaching and design training for people like Andres Tejero Pacheco, and the other sells the unique items created by them. Despite the fact that Rambler is getting a financial leg up from the Dutch government, Carmen says she and her team are still having it hard. Like, it's impossible if you sell, if you have profit on clothing, to think that you also can pay guidance out of that. You have to pay marketing, you have to pay the, the shop locations. There's all other costs in which a fashion label have difficulties already to stand up in this society. Also doing it organically. So those profit, maybe if you sell lots of the clothing, of course, then you can pay the foundation. But until that, we also say to the government, guiding cannot be paid by that profit. We started this with the aim on the fashion label. So that's why we said we have to focus first on this daily system and prove with fashion shows every year that we are able to have a place in this market. And I have to admit, we wished that it could be quicker in the f entering the fashion uh, world. But the whole, the whole thing of producing is more difficult than we initially thought. It goes step by step having a company. I tell you this. <laughs> Amsterdam-based Rambler has to turn to the government for finance. But across the Atlantic and the US, many companies are beginning to use each other to secure investment. In Seattle, Washington state, an organization called Community Source Capital provides exactly what is suggested in the name, money for businesses generated within their communities. To find out more, we got on the line with Casey Dilloway, the organization's co-founder and chief operating officer. It's a company we created to make it possible for the smallest businesses in the US to access capital so that they can keep growing and hire people and do whatever they need to do to make communities great. So it's a two-part system. One where we're trying to create affordable and healthy capital for small businesses. And another where we're enabling the people in the communities where the businesses exist to put their money to work by lending to these businesses. So at the end of the day, it's an online platform that allows small businesses to borrow money directly from people in their own community. In the U.S., we have a financial system that really favors the biggest businesses. And there's a lot of data you can point to over the last decade or so that shows how the smaller businesses have been left behind and it's made it really hard for them to access traditional capital. Not only does community source capital allow small businesses to bypass banks, a traditional source of finance, it also defies traditional lending rules. Everything takes place online, so the businesses that are borrowing money on, on the platform are paying us basically flat software fees to use our system in order to borrow money from people in their community. Uh, in order for this to be working in a regulatory 
free world and also in a way that makes sense and is easy for everyone to get involved, the entire lending system is at 0% interest. So no one's making money in this system. They're just lending money to hopefully get it back. So the average person puts $100 into a loan for a business they know, and they get paid back $100 at most. So there aren't, aren't any financial incentives in the system. The only reason that people are lending money is because it's to people that they know, which in some ways really makes the system much more sustainable and makes it much more honest. I mean, people are only putting money to work because they believe it will work, not because they believe that it's going to generate a huge financial windfall for them in a couple of years. And that's a totally different type of system, but we really think it's the kind of system that's rooted in community and trust. And uh, at the end of the day, we think it's a sustainable system. Casey spoke to us in late April during his daily early morning walk to his office. On the way, he passed many of the businesses that Community Source Capital had worked with. We've got bakeries, we have grocery stores, tourist companies, there are lots of breweries, a um, couple coffee shops. It's a lot of, of food-oriented businesses because those tend to be the businesses that are most connected to people. Everyone eats, so you tend to remember where you eat and where you like eating. And so that's been a pretty strong uh, group of businesses that we've worked with. It's the food-based businesses. So far, all this lending has been largely limited to Washington State, but Casey says there are plans to expand operations nationwide. Community Source Capital's first ever customer was also a food-oriented business, a cranberry farm outside Seattle that was looking for investment to help it go up market. Casey tells their story. And they were transitioning their cranberries from just regular berries to organic berries, uh, which required a lot of work and, you know, a couple years of getting pesticides and everything out of the system. Long story to say, they needed a juicer and like a really fancy juicer, like a $12,000 juicer, not like a off the shelf from Ikea juicer. So they raised $12,000 from about 110 people to buy the juicer. And with those 110 people, they didn't just get the money to do it. They also got uh, a whole fan base that followed them for the next two years while they built their business. So every time they were on new shelves at a new grocery store or every time they had a new account at a bar in town, they were able to message everyone and say, hey, thanks for your continued support. We're in the process of paying you back and here's something new about the business. So just yesterday, they repaid their loan in full. They finished paying it back after two years and returned all the money to all of their lenders. And now their business has been going really well. They've gone from two employees to 10 employees and they have a reason to buy a bigger juicer and to keep on growing. So they've launched a $40,000 loan opportunity in order to keep on growing. And we expect that a lot of the same people that took a chance on them for their first loan will come back for the second one too. Community Source Capital has itself been growing fast. When it first started off, however, everything was, and I quote Casey, lean and scrappy. There was no technology, nor office, and not much forethought. Today, it's all strategic thinking and business planning, but some challenges still remain. Well, we've been growing in a really beautiful way, and we've been making everybody happy as we grow, which is a good success point. We haven't quite grown big enough to pay all our bills. So we're still, 
you know, trying to earn enough revenue to cover our cost so that it can be a self-sustaining business. I mean, we don't anticipate that anyone's going to get rich off this business model. We're not trying to be a, a Facebook or a Twitter or anything like that, but we didn't want to create a traditional nonprofit that was going to take money away from our nonprofit peers if we thought that we could create a revenue model that sustained itself. So, I mean, we're still definitely growing in a way that we need to so that we can sustain our own operations. And that's the main goal for the horizon is growth in our own communities by getting the word out about what we do and how it benefits small businesses. And that's all we have time for on this very first edition of The Grid. It was brought to you by me, Alexei Korolev, and my co-producer, Milo Tesela. Our thanks to Andres Förster of Fagnebenan, Carmen van der Fecht and Andres Tejedo Pacheco at Rambler, and Casey Dilloway from Community Source Capital. For more of the neighborhood-oriented businesses, make sure to check out Connected in Amsterdam, Halfway Up the Stairs in Berlin, and Hand Up in San Francisco. If there are any interesting companies doing something for their communities that you think we have left out, please drop us a line at contact at thegridpodcast.com or share it on Twitter with the hashtag thegrid01. We would also like to thank Lelit Asirian, the creator of The Grid's wonderful logo and visual identity, and the very talented Alexander Forstner for our very own grid music and sound identity. You'll find more information about them in the show notes and on our website, thegridpodcast.com. Don't miss our next edition all about innovation in education and let us know if there's anything in your area we should look out for. Also, please come forward with any ideas, comments or questions regarding our podcast in general. Make sure to subscribe to The Grid on SoundCloud, iTunes or any other podcast app of your choice. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and of course, like our page on Facebook and just help spread the word, people. Thank you.